I hate Brussels sprouts. <laughs> if you grew up in a home like mine where we were told hate is on that list of words you're not allowed to use, you can replace hate with some synonym, but I hate them. A good host or hostess, when he or she invites you to their house for a meal, will often ask, do you have any dietary restrictions? And I think usually what they're asking for is there's some food that will kill you if I serve it to you. <laughs> so, for example, if you have a peanut allergy, we won't put peanuts in the pad thai, which kind of destroys the pad thai. But... Uh, but they also often want to know if there are particular likes or dislikes. And so when I'm asked that question, as I was uh, fairly recently, a student wanted me to come to her house and she wanted to introduce me to her husband and kids and share a meal together. So she said, you have any restrictions? I said, any allergies? I said, no. She said, any foods you particularly don't like? I said, I don't, I don't eat raw tomatoes and I don't like mushrooms. Uh, and she said, that's fine. Um, I just won't put those on your salad. I'll put them on the side. Fine, we'll be in good shape. So, you know, I knock on her door at the appointed time. And uh, she greets me and um, says, I remember you don't like tomatoes and mushrooms. And she said, I have a salad, but I put them on the side. So yours, yours will be fine. I said, and I also don't like Brussels sprouts. Yeah, you've been there too. Where the words come out of your mouth and you immediately recognize, you should not have said that out loud. She recovered really quickly and then said, guess what I made as a vegetable? Brussels sprouts. And then she shifted into mom mode and said, you have to eat at least one. And I realized in that moment that I don't know whether I like Brussels sprouts or not. I had never tasted Brussels sprouts. In fact, I didn't know that they were Brussels sprouts. I thought they were Brussels sprouts. It's actually kind of weird when you think about it. I ate the Brussels sprout. I actually took not one, but two, put them on my plate. I ate one and thought, you know, this is actually pretty good. She said, how do you like it? I said, I like it. And then I felt like I should apologize for being a hypocrite. I'll just chalk that up to we introverts sometimes appear socially awkward because we are. <laughs> We're not quite sure what to say and when to say it and how. So, um, but eating Brussels sprouts changed my life in really significant ways. My son at Thanksgiving time will make Brussels sprouts uh, with cheese and bacon. Oh, it's amazing. Forget the turkey. I'm going to eat his Brussels sprouts and his mac and cheese. Five different kinds of cheese. Bacon on that too. Amazing. Uh, kid ought to be in food business. Actually is. Um, eating Brussels sprouts changed my life. Uh, that's why I'm here today. Uh, to tell you to eat more Brussels sprouts. <laughs> no, actually, 
there's a point of comparison and an analogy and an argument from lesser to greater from the way Brussels sprouts changed my life to the way meeting Jesus changed my life. It is my conviction that meeting, that seeing Jesus changes the way we see everything else. And I'm not talking about that time when you were three years old, when you prayed at VBS to receive Christ. I'm not talking about that time at 16, when you were arrested, sitting in a jail cell, pray, promising God anything at all to get out of that mess. I'm not, tell, I'm not talking about that time when you were in premarital counseling and you realized that the, the stuff the pastor was talking about was not something that was real to you. And I'm not talking about that time you listened to the pastor in a sermon, and for the first time in your life, the gospel connected to you. By the way, I haven't had any of those experiences. I've been a Christian as long as I remember. In fact, I can't remember a time that I wasn't. And if you're in that situation like I was and have always felt like there's something wrong with you, there are all kinds of things wrong with you. That's not it. Have you ever been made to feel like a second-class citizen because you don't have that spectacular testimony that people want to hear and they, they sell out stadiums to hear your... T Nobody ever asks for mine. And when I tell it, people usually go, that's it? That, yeah, that, that's it. I wasn't looking for anything, but I woke up and realized I had been a Christian. And so now what? No, I'm actually talking about meeting Jesus every single day of your life. And that seeing Jesus changes the way we see everything else. By the way, um, there are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. We all travel first class, as I hope I get to do today. <laughs> Jesus' disciple. Uh, you can edit that out. <laughs> Jesus' disciples were monotheists. They weren't convinced of a whole lot, but the people of Israel by this time in their history were convinced that there is one God, only one God, that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is not like the gods of the nations around them. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is one God. All those other gods are so-called gods. So the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is not the greatest of all the gods. He, well, he is the greatest of all the gods because all the other gods don't exist. So existence is better than non-existence. So the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the only God who is. They are convinced of that. There is one and only one God. And then along comes Jesus. And that meeting him changes everything because Jesus keeps talking about himself as if he's God. Now that would be no big deal, except because it's pretty common in religions around the world for gods to come to earth and reveal themselves. But there are not multiple gods, there's only one. And Jesus refers to his Father in heaven as God. So the Father is God and the Son is God, that sounds like two. And then before he leaves, he tells them there's a third of us. And the disciples in the early church for a long period of time, it takes them a couple of hundred years before they have the language to describe that, before they have the term Trinity to describe this God. Trinity, which is a cultural term, not a biblical term, but a cultural term that summarizes the biblical teaching. They don't have a confession. It's hundreds of years before we have the Athanasian Creed. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, but the Father is not the Son of the Spirit, the Son is not the Father of the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father of the Son. They don't have that. What they have 
is a conviction that there is one God and a conviction that Jesus is who he claims to be. So what do we do with this? Well, what they did with that is to believe that there is one God and Jesus is God. So there must be some plurality in the Godhead. You pick up any one of the epistles. I mean, actually, I mean that. Any one of the epistles and every single one of them. Not in the content of the epistle itself, but in the introduction where the author says, Hi, my name is Paul. I'm writing to you. Greetings. Every single one, whether it's Paul or James or the writer of Hebrews or John, uses language of plurality. Father and Son, and several of them actually mention the Spirit as well. Because meeting Jesus changes everything. Because seeing Jesus changes the way you see everything else, including your conception of who God is. Now, it's not that God all of a sudden became Trinity. It's not that God all of a sudden changed. God has always been Father, Son, and Spirit. He has always been Trinity. But he reveals himself as Trinity in the coming of Jesus. And seeing Jesus changes the way we view everything else. It changes the way we read the Scripture. Now that we know God is one God in three persons, all kinds of biblical texts make sense to us that were a bit mysterious before. So when we hear God say, let us make Adam in our image, that sounds to us like reflection within the Godhead. When we meet this strange character, this angel of the Lord character who is defined as, described as an angel or messenger, but seems to be more than that, we say, you know, we've seen this before. God actually became one of us, took on human flesh permanently and eternally in Jesus of Nazareth. So those angels of the Lord are types, foreshadowing, symbols of this, and it makes sense to us. When we read Daniel chapter 7, and we see one like a son of man approaching the Ancient of Days sitting on the throne, we say, well, that's easy. That's the father on the throne and the son who is the Messiah receiving from him a kingdom that never ends. Because meeting Jesus, seeing Jesus changes the way we see everything else. People of faith have always confessed that God is the creator. And then we read in the New Testament over and over and over again that Jesus is linked to creation. So when we read in Genesis that God spoke the universe into existence, we read in John 1, it's introduced by the same phrase in the beginning. And we know that the word of God is the word of God and all things are made by him. That makes sense to us because seeing Jesus changes the way we see everything else. For those of us who have a high view of Scripture, and I'm going to assume that's everybody in the room, that we believe that God so wants to be known that he has revealed himself in his word, he revealed himself in his son, and according to Scripture, he revealed himself in the world around us as well. We believe that somehow God superintended, the Spirit of God superintended the human authors of the Bible. Not that he dictated to them the words that come to us, but when Paul sat down and wrote, Paul wrote out of his experience. Paul wrote in the language that he knew and understood. And somehow the Spirit of God superintended that process so that what Paul wrote is God's word to us. It's the great great mystery of the dual authorship of Scripture and the superintending work of the Spirit. 
because scripture comes to us from God, we believe that scripture comes with divine character, with divine authority. So what scripture says, God says. We believe that scripture is true in everything that it affirms, not in everything that it says, because some false statements are recorded in scripture. The, the fool has said there is no God. But everything the Bible affirms is true because God is truth and he doesn't affirm that which is not true. For those of us who believe that, what I'm about to say might sound a bit shocking and provocative, but it's true. And I'll show you it's what Jesus believed and taught. And that is, number one, it's not enough to read the Bible. The Bible must be read correctly because the most important thing is not the Bible and your reading of the Bible the most important thing is the subject of the Bible. And the subject of the Bible and the author of the Bible has a name. His name is Jesus. Many students wonder, I did too, how it is possible that some of the best commentaries on the Bible ever written are written by people who don't believe that God is triune. They're written by people who don't believe Jesus is God in the flesh. They're written by people who don't believe that Jesus is the only way to God. They're written by people who don't believe that the scripture is God's word. They're written by people who don't believe that God is authoritative and that the scripture is inerrant. How is it possible for people who don't believe those things to write commentaries that are helpful for us it's really simple because you don't have to be a Christian to understand syntax and grammar and the definition of words. It is possible to have all the exegetical skills. It is possible to have all the linguistic skills. It is possible to be able to, to recite from memory words from the Bible and not believe a word of it because the goal is not biblical content. The goal is to know Jesus. I teach at Dallas Seminary. I have two degrees from Dallas Seminary. And although I had hoped when I finished at Dallas Seminary, I would get to move back up to this part of the country. We're from southeastern Pennsylvania originally, hence the accent, <laughs> which I can't get rid of. <laughs> um, but God had other plans. And here we are now, decades later, and I get a chance to work at my alma mater. I love it. We're about to undergo a transition at Dallas Seminary from one mark to another mark. One of the great benefits of the transition is that there will no longer be that confusion. When you refer to Mark, you talking about Bailey or Yarbrough? Uh, Dr. Bailey has served the seminary faithfully, uh, and I am incredibly grateful. Uh, having watched the relationship between this church and seminary from a distance uh, to continue that relationship. This is my first time here, and this has been a real joy for me, so thank you. Dr. Bailey often says, in fact, I heard him multiple times in a new student orientation. He would talk about how his view of teaching changed, how his view of his task changed and developed. And he links it to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, where Paul says, the goal of our instruction is love. And Dr. Bailey will say, I used to think the goal of instruction was instruction. 
I used to think the goal of instruction was giving people biblical content. I used to think the goal of instruction is answering people's questions about the Bible. I used to think the goal of biblical instruction is giving them information. And he said, the goal is not information. Not that any of those things are wrong. All of those things are good things. The goal, Paul says, is love. The goal, Jesus says, is that we would know him. In the same way, but to a much greater degree, that meeting Brussels sprouts changed my life and continues to change it today. Meeting Jesus consistently, constantly, regularly, repeatedly changes our lives. Because to see Jesus changes the way we see everything else. My text this morning is in John chapter 5. I'm going to do something probably a bit unusual in Bible churches, at least in my experience in Bible churches. Uh, rather than reading a couple of verses uh, and explaining those verses, I want to look at the whole chapter. Uh, partly because I think it is important that we see text in context. And also partly because I think it's important that we recognize how the narrator uses the story to, um, to make the point that the narrator wants to make. And just, I just like this text. Uh, so when you, you give me a chance to speak somewhere, I preach on the text that I like, not the ones that I don't like. Uh, yeah, we all have those. As people regularly quote Mark Twain, my problem with the Bible is not the parts that I don't understand. My problem is the parts that I do understand and don't like. In John chapter 5, Jesus is in trouble again. Imagine that. It's the Sabbath. If you take out the stories in the Gospels that involve controversy on the Sabbath, until you get to Passion Week, there's not much left. It's almost like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are making a point by the stories they tell, that Jesus is doing something. And it's particularly important that he's doing that thing on the Sabbath. That, and when he, the things he does on the Sabbath, he does intentionally. He does deliberately. He does it repeatedly. And he often does it not by kind of hiding in the background. He'll stand up and, and boldly say, hey, watch this. Now what are you going to do? And this story is particularly clear on that. He's in trouble because he sees this guy who has been an invalid for 38 years. This guy hasn't walked in 38 years. Jesus walks over to him and gives him a really simple command, get up and walk. And the guy gets up and walks. <laughs> he doesn't say, uh, Jesus, did you see my legs? My muscles are all atrophied, there's nothing there. I watched what happened to my son when he had uh, ACL surgery a couple of years ago, this 22 year old kid bigger than me, he could barely walk, and his, his, his leg is a whole lot smaller than the other leg, and it took him months to build up strength in that leg. This is 38 years, and this dude starts walking away. 
and the religious leaders, the experts on the law, the biblical interpreters, the seminary professors, completely missed the, the point of the miracle. And they found fault with the dude because he's walking and carrying his mat on the Sabbath. My wife and I love live music. You know what's really annoying? I mean, really annoying. I mean, I don't think there's much more annoying than this. To spend half a, day, half a week's salary for a ticket for a show, and you can't hear the music because the people behind you are talking the whole way through the show. No, the point of going to a live music performance is uh, the music. <laughs> the point of this man's miracle is the fact that this man who hadn't walked for 38 years is able to walk. Not that he's carrying his mat. I mean, could you so miss the point then that because Jesus is doing these things on the Sabbath, verse 16 says, the religious leaders began to persecute him. And in response, Jesus said, I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean to offend you. Let me see what I can do to diffuse and de-escalate the conflict. I'll, I'll back away. No. He reaches down, picks up the can of gasoline, and throws it on the fire. And we'll caution you, because there are probably angry young men in the room who would love to be like Jesus. This is not a model to be followed, except on the circumstances when it is. And that's what most of us lack, wisdom to know the difference. There's a time to speak and a time to be silent. Since you're not Jesus, and you're not in control of the situation, and you didn't come here to die, and you know in the Gospel of John, you're not gonna die until the time is right. Uh, be careful. Diffusing conflict, de-escalating conflict is a spiritual gift. I could actually unpack that, but that would be a different sermon. Because Jesus is doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said, um, I'm working on the Sabbath because my father is always working on the Sabbath. And uh, it's a really good thing my father is always working on the Sabbath because if my father wasn't working on the Sabbath, there would be no you. And there would be no ground to stand on because the universe would pass out of existence. So you should be glad that my, he doesn't say all of that, but that's actually what he means. Uh, my father is working on the Sabbath and so am I. And that ticked them off even more. Now they want to kill him because they recognize unambiguously that he is calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Hit pause here and say, uh, New Testament scholars often ask the question, so why are there so few references, so, so few times in the New Testament where Jesus uses the word theos for himself, where so many times where the, um, the epistles refer to Jesus as God, it's all over the Gospels. 
His opponents knew what he was claiming. Here's one of the clear ones. They, they, they didn't have to hear Jesus say, I am God, to know what he was claiming. And now they want to kill him, which is really funny when you stop and think about it. Not killing people, but you're going to destroy the giver of life. That's not quite as bizarre as after Jesus raises Lazarus, then they plot to kill Lazarus because he was a victim of the grace of God. Some of you might have thought that antagonism to Jesus is a new phenomenon in the postmodern world. Uh, No. There was an awful lot of opposition and antagonism toward Jesus in his day. And so here's Jesus' response that he was making himself equal to God. They wanted to kill him. And Jesus said, I can't do anything. I can only do what the Father, what I see the Father doing, because what the Father does, I do. And you're impressed by this stuff. You're, you're, you're amazed by, by what I'm saying. Um, on the day of judgment, I am the judge. The Father judges no one, verse 22. He has entrusted all judgment to the Son, uh, that all may honor the Son as they honor the Father. And the time is coming when all who are in their graves, all who are dead, will come out. Those who have done good will rise to live. Those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. And then in verse 31 and following, Jesus enters, as it were, into a courtroom. And he provides witnesses who testify to who he is. He says in verse 31, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. Now, Jesus is not saying that his words are not true, that his testimony is not true. He's saying they're not valid. They're not They don't meet the standard of the court of law because the Mosaic law requires for a matter to be established two or three witnesses. And if Jesus is the only one who testifies, then his matter has not been established. So what does he do? He cites other witnesses. And he goes back to John 1. Uh, In reference to John, he said, you have sent to John and he has testified to the truth. And we remember that story back in John 1 where these guys sent emissaries up to John to ask him, what are you doing? And who are you? And Jesus says, like John did back in chapter one, that that John testified to the truth. He is not the Messiah. He is pointing forward to the one who is to come. I have testimony greater than John, he says, for the works, second testimony, second witness, for the works the Father has given me to finish, the very works I am doing, testify that the Father has sent me. I'm not the only one who testifies. You already heard the testimony of John. My works testified to who I am. And the Father testifies. The Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. And to the experts in the scripture, to the Bible scholars of the day, to the man who had all this figured out and whose responsibility it was to explain to the people the voice of God in the scriptures. Jesus said, you have never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he has sent. 
you study the scriptures because you think the scriptures are the source of eternal life. They are not. The scriptures testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me and receive eternal life. You study the scriptures because you think the scriptures are the words of life. They are not. You're wrong. You're wasting your time. Not because it's wrong to read the scriptures, but it's wrong to read the scriptures wrongly. It's wrong to read the scriptures not recognizing the subject of the scriptures and the author of the scripture and, this, and the, the object of the scripture is Jesus. And seeing Jesus changes the way we see everything else. There's nothing in Jesus' words here that undermine or minimize, uh, destroy, disrespect the word of God. It's the reminder that in our Bible study, we are not filling our heads with information and content. We don't go to Bible study in order to have our questions answered. We don't go to Bible study in order to prove to people that we are right. We don't go to Bible study in order to prove to other people that they are wrong. We don't go to Bible study to prove to people that we are smarter than they are. I've been doing this for several decades and I know seminary students are in each one of those categories. And one of the greatest joys as a professor is to see a student move from one of those categories into the category of falling in love with Jesus. And to realize that there are a whole lot more important things than being right. Being wrong is not one of them. Right relationships are a whole lot more important than winning arguments. Those people are not convinced of the gospel because of the power of your arguments. It's not. In all of our Bible study, I hope we don't miss the point. And then the final zinger, and it's amazing to me that Jesus gets out of this alive. When he says to these teachers of the law, you love Moses so much. On the day of judgment, remember judgment is given to me. On the day of judgment, I will not be your judge. Moses will. Because if Moses were here today, he would recognize me because Moses wrote about me. Not because when Moses wrote, he believed in the virgin-born God in the flesh who would die on a cross and be raised from the dead three days later. No, but, but when, the, when the author of the Pentateuch meets Jesus, he says, Aha, now I know what I meant when I wrote what I wrote. Meeting Jesus changes the way we see everything else. There are three things about this conversation that are crucial for us. Number one, according to Jesus, the Bible is not the source of life. Jesus is. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We are not saved by grace through faith in the Bible. The Bible testifies to Jesus. Jesus is our salvation. Jesus is the basis of our faith. Jesus is the one who saves and changes us and who indwells us by means of the Spirit. Number two, our study of the Bible must not terminate on the less important things. The goal of Bible study is not to be able to exegete the text and not to know the syntax and the grammar of the way that works. All of those things are important and are helpful 
But if that's where we terminate, if that's where we stop, we have missed the point because we study the scriptures in order to know Jesus, who is the subject of the scriptures. And that's true, not just of the New Testament. That's true of the old. Because the Bible is this grand story of redemption. It's this grand story of a God who created the world out of nothing. He spoke and things came into existence. And he created Adam, male and female, in his image and likeness. And he gave a very simple command. Go reproduce, be fruitful, multiply. Eat anything you want, except that one tree. And here comes the adversary, almost immediately, into the garden. And he says, you want to eat that tree. You don't listen to God. Eat from that tree. By the way, this story repeats itself in your life and mine over and over and over again. You want to know, right? You want knowledge. One of the great theologians of our day says, and all the knowledge of the world is of no use to fools. I don't know if Don Henley or Glenn Fry or Timothy B. Schmidt get credit for that line, but all three of them wrote that song together. That means they were in the room. That's that long road out of Eden, that, that line in that song is such a powerful summary of the gospel story from men who, to my knowledge, don't believe a word of it. But God's response to our eating the fruit of the tree is not to say, I'm done, I'm out, you bunch of losers because God is who he says he is. He is compassionate and gracious and merciful and abounding in love and faithfulness. Out of his great love for us, because he is rich in mercy, all of those are biblical words that God uses to describe himself. He loved us so much, he became one of us. Not for a short period of time. He didn't put on clothes, come to earth, and then go back to heaven. But Jesus is embodied today and is looking forward to the day as we are looking forward to the day. I would submit to you that his hope is greater than ours. He's looking forward to the day when he comes back to this place and he makes this earth his dwelling place forever and ever. And he lets us move into his neighborhood. We get to live with him forever. That's how we read the biblical story. It's a story of a God who loves the world he created, who will not leave it to its own devices. He will not leave you alone. He will pursue you. He will find you. Because he loves you. Trying to hide from God, you can't. Um, if you're running away from the God who you thought was angry at you, you're running away from the God who, who you think doesn't love you because you'll never measure up. I came here today to tell you <laughs> that that God loves you more than you could ever imagine. He will not let you go. Father, thank you for the hope we have in your son. Thank you for your love toward us which was demonstrated to us in sending your son, that we only know what love is because you gave us your son. And you've given us the incredible privilege and responsibility and the great joy of helping others come to know you 
through your son, Jesus. And, and that is an incredible privilege. We thank you for it. We thank you for him. And we thank you for the hope we have in your son and God's people said. Amen.